Good morning. It is good to be here this morning in the house of the Lord. Um, It is good to be here to be able to share from the Word of God, to be able to worship as the body of Christ together. You know, we're coming up on about a year now as a church plant here in Chalfont. And coming up on a year, we have been forced as a core team and as leadership to constantly survey the landscape. And when I say survey the landscape, I mean survey the state of the church, survey the community, survey the culture at large. And what we've found from doing that over and over and over again is that we walk away with the same thoughts. That our focus and that our emphasis should be on a few things. And those things are personal holiness, righteous living, and raising our families in the truth. It always seems to come back to those things. So we as a church have tried to institute different means to accomplish that goal. And I'll go through a few of them. First, Bible study. We get together every Wednesday on Zoom. I would encourage you to participate if you haven't already. And we do it on Zoom because it's accessible to everyone, right? You don't have to get in a car and travel anywhere. And we're currently going through the book of Genesis. Now, I've heard certain theologians and historians say that if you want to understand the culture and what's going on around you, just read the book of Genesis, and it'll all make sense. Because if you read the book of Genesis, you get a better idea of the nature of God. You get a better idea of the nature of man, sin, creation, a theology of the family, a theology of work, and you see glimpses of Christ and types of Christ all throughout Genesis. So we've started Bible study. In addition to that, we do small group. And that's a time where we can gather together as families and commune together and fellowship together. We even break up into groups, into men's groups and women's groups. And the reason that we do that is because we acknowledge that there's a difference between men and women and that we need accountability. And if you're honest with yourself, you know that we need accountability, right? And then finally, the family worship guide. We send that out every single week via email. If you don't receive it, if you haven't received it, let us know. And in that family worship guide, what you'll find is, first, a summary of the past week's sermon. You'll find questions for you to think about and for you to discuss with your family together. You'll find a link to this podcast that we do, and we record every single week where we discuss the sermon and its practical implications. And you'll even find lyrics to songs that we're going to sing the next week. So you can sing them together in your family worship time and prepare yourself for the, for the worship the next Sunday. Now, there are someone who would say, why are you doing all this stuff? <laughs> why don't you just get together on Sunday? Why, why are you going through all the trouble of doing all these things? There's not even that many people here. Why, why do that? Well, the fact is, we would do it if there was one person here. That's the truth, honestly. But why do we do it? Turn your Bibles with me to 2 John. 2 John, there's only one chapter, verses 6 through 10. Let's read that together. 2 John 1, 6 through 10. And this is love, that we walk according to his commandments. This is the command Just as you have heard from the beginning, that you should walk in it. For many deceivers have gone out into the world, those who do not acknowledge Jesus Christ as coming in the flesh. This is the deceiver and the antichrist. Watch yourself, that you do not lose what we have accomplished, but that you may receive a full reward. Anyone who goes too far and does not abide in the teachings of Christ does not have God. 
The one who abides in the teaching, he has both the Father and the Son. If anyone comes to you and does not bring this teaching, do not receive him into your house, and do not give him a greeting. Pretty powerful stuff. Here we have the Apostle John, and he's writing a letter out of concern. And he's telling the believers to be cautious. He's writing to them because there are false teachers going around, knocking on doors, trying to come into homes and propagate false teachings. And what does he say in verse 10? He says, if anyone comes to you with a teaching other than this, don't let them into your house. Don't welcome them. Now, we can understand that a wooden and a literal interpretation of this verse was appropriate for that time. They likely had people walking around, knocking on doors. But is it appropriate for us? Does it apply to us today? I don't see too many false teachers walking around my neighborhood. I don't know if you do. The only people that come to my door are welcomed guests, Amazon delivery men, and state representatives once in a while with a clipboard wanting you to sign some stuff, but never any false teachers. So how does this verse apply to us? Really simple. This. This is how it applies to us. See, whether it's through your phone, through the internet, through television, streaming services, the radio, podcasts, whatever it may be, False teachings and ideologies and narratives have more access to us than they ever had before. And it is on us as families of believers to know when to keep the door shut. It is on us to recognize what's true from what's false and to bring in the truth and to keep out the false. That's our job. And that's why we try to flood you with resources and teachings as much as possible. But today, in 2023, you have to go even a little further than that. Because you not only have to discern what's true from what's false, you also have to be able to discern the times. Solomon in Ecclesiastes, he says this, There is nothing new under the sun. What does that mean? He can't be talking about technology, right? We have electric cars now. You can actually plug them into the wall and then drive off. You don't even need gas. He's not talking about technology when he says that. He's not talking about construction. He's not talking about modern medicine. He's not talking about any of those things. So what does he mean when he says there's nothing new under the sun? The nature of man. It's the same. Man's proclivity to sin, man's proclivity to exalt self, the way the world works, the way the world operates, there's nothing new under the sun. And there have been false teachings and heresies that have presented themselves over the years over and over and over again. And it has been up to godly believers to refute them every single time. So let's go through just a few heresies that have been really popular in the past and see if you recognize them. First one, Arianism. This is a false heresy that was in the 3rd or 4th century AD. It was propagated by a man named Arius. And what he taught was that Jesus was created. He was not co-eternal with the Father. He was actually a created being. And so he questioned the divinity of Christ. And you can see the negative implications of this. If you question the divinity of Christ, well, now the atonement for sin is not the same. Salvation is not the same. Do we see this nowadays? We sure do. We see all kinds of people who say that Jesus was just a good guy. 
They acknowledged that he was real. They acknowledged that he existed, but just that he was a good teacher. And even some of the stuff that he said we might be able to apply today, but they will never acknowledge him as God. We'll try one more. Quietism. Quietism started in the 1600s somewhere in Europe. And the idea behind quietism was that everything inside of us is divine so that we should suppress all physical effort. So to the quietist, there was no need for prayer. There was no need for reading the Bible. There was no need for Holy Communion or baptism or gathering together. Nothing. Do we see that today? Certainly do. There are churches all over the country and all over the world where people come and they come to the altar and they repeat a couple lines and then they go home never to open their Bible ever again or say a prayer or come back because they think they're good. They think they're safe. You see, it's up to us to be able to tell the difference between what's true and what's false, to keep the door closed when we need to, to be able to discern the times Pastor Billy last week spoke on judging rightly and not being hypercritical. Today, we are going to go into how to rightly approach God in prayer and how to truly love one another. Let's pray. Lord, our Heavenly Father, we come before you this morning and we thank you, God. We pray, O Lord, that as we study your scriptures, we pray that you illuminate them for us, O Lord, that you open our eyes to your truth, that we might accept your truth and apply your truth. We thank you for your many blessings in our lives. In Jesus' name, amen. So over the past few months at this point, we have been in a sermon series called King and Kingdom, where we've been going through the Gospel of Matthew. We even had a mini-series within a series where we studied the Lord's Prayer. Last week, Pastor Billy spoke to us about the speck and the log, and today we're going to pick up where he left off. So turn your Bibles with me to Matthew 7, and we'll start in verse 7. Matthew 7, verse 7. Ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks, receive. And he who seeks finds, and to him who knocks, it will be opened. We'll stop there. Now, to get better clarity, let's jump to the synoptic gospel of Luke, where we see a similar teaching. Luke 11, verse 5 on. This is the same teaching, a different instance. Starting in verse 5. He then said to them, Suppose one of you has a friend and goes to him at midnight and says to him, Friend, Lend me three loaves, for a friend of mine has come to me from a journey, and I have nothing to set before him. And from inside he answers and says, Do not bother me, the door has already been shut, and my children and I are in bed. I cannot get up and give you anything. I tell you, even though he will not get up and give him anything because he is his friend, yet because of his persistence, he will get up and give him as much as he needs. Verse 9, So I say to you, Ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives, and he who seeks finds. And to him who knocks, it will be opened. Amen. So here we have Jesus telling a story about a man who is asleep in his home in the middle of the night. He's there with his family. 
And then he's disturbed in the middle of the night by his friend who's knocking on the door. And what is he asking for? He's asking for bread. What's so interesting is that he's not even asking for bread for himself. He's asking for bread for his friend. So, quite a disturbance. Now, the first thing that we have to notice right away is that the homes that Jesus is describing are not the homes that we're accustomed to. Jesus is not describing a home that's a four-bedroom, two-and-a-half bath, half an acre in the back, pool, two-car— that's not what he's talking about. The home that Jesus is describing is like a typical home in Israel at that time, which was simply one room. That's it. Just one room. So when this man is sleeping in the middle of the night, he's sleeping there with his whole family, together with his children. Now, I know that when my oldest son, Lucas, was really young, it was quite an ordeal to get him to go to sleep. It was. I remember it would start in the bathroom. Betsy would start the process over there about 7 o'clock or so. And she would get him. She would put him in a tub, inside a tub, with like a netting. And then she would use this soap and clean him off with a, with a soft towel type of thing, uh, with this no-tears shampoo and soap. It was, yeah. So then she would dry him off. She would bring him over to the room, over to this special little table that was adjacent to the crib. And then there she would put lotion on him. She would put on his diaper. She would put him in this one-piece thing with a zipper from the toe all the way up with a button. And then after doing that, she would feed him a whole bottle of milk. She would hand him to me. I'd be sitting on this rocking chair thing. And then I would read him a story. And then after that, I would pray. Hopefully he'd be asleep. And then I would lay him down ever so gently in his crib and then make sure that the lullabies were on, make sure that the lighting was right, make sure that the camera was on. And then finally, I would walk out of the room, close the door behind me, and just say, please, 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 stay asleep. Don't wake up. Because finally, I was hoping for one full night of sleep. So I can relate to this man who is sleeping with his family in the middle of the night and being disturbed by his friend. I can understand his frustration. It was likely very, very frustrating. But Jesus says that because of his persistence, and that word persistence can be translated also as boldness, because of his boldness, he will get up and open the door. Now, As Jesus tells his story and comes to his conclusion, you would think that the moral of the story, the big big takeaway point, you would imagine that the big takeaway would be this. You see that friend, that so-called friend? Don't you ever approach God like that. Don't you ever seek out God like that. It's irreverent. It's ridiculous. But what does Jesus actually say? He says, you see that friend? That's exactly what I want you to do. I want you to ask. I want you to seek. I want you to knock. Ask, seek, knock. You can see it's progressively getting more intense from asking all the way to just full-on knocking. Now, when I read this passage, I'll admit to you, I had a hard time accepting it. I really did. I had a hard time accepting this passage. And the reason was not that I thought Jesus was, or the Lord was sleeping, We know according to Psalm 121 that God neither slumbers nor sleeps, right? We know that he is all-powerful. He is always 
awake. So it wasn't that. It was the boldness. That's what I had a hard time accepting, that boldness. Esther, chapter 4, verse 11. When we see that passage, we see that Esther is describing King Xerxes, and he was the king at that time. And she said very clearly in verse 11, that if you enter into his presence without him summoning you, you will be put to death. Simple as that. You see, we're not dealing with a man in Israel sleeping in a one-room house on the floor with his family. We're dealing with a king. So how do we reconcile that? We're talking about a king who is greater than King Xerxes. Turn your Bibles with me to Isaiah chapter 6. Isaiah 6, starting in verse 1. In the, year King Uzziah's, in the year of King Uzziah's death, I saw the Lord sitting on a throne, lofty and exalted, with the train of his robe filling the temple. Seraphim stood above him, each having six wings. With two he covered his face, and with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. And one called out to the other and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the foundations of the thresholds trembled at the voice of him who called out with the temple while the temple was filling with smoke. Then I said, Woe is me, for I am ruined, because I am a man of unclean lips, and I lived among a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Now that's the King that we serve. So how do we reconcile what Christ is saying in Matthew 7 about knocking and this? How do we reconcile those two things? How do we make sense of that? This is why I had a hard time digesting it. We find our answer in the subsequent verses. Let's read only a few more verses forward. Verse 6. Then one of the seraphim flew to me with a burning coal in his hand, which he had taken from the altar with tongs. He touched my mouth with it and said, Behold, this has touched your lips, and your iniquity is taken away, and your sin is forgiven. Verse 8, Then I heard the voice of the Lord, saying, Whom shall I send, and who will go for us? Then I said, Here I am, send me. What a turnaround, right? What a change. In the previous verse, we have Isaiah saying, Woe is me, I am undone, I don't belong here, I'm nothing, I'm less than nothing, I, I, I shouldn't be here. And then all of a sudden, here he is now saying, Here I am with a boldness, saying, Send me. How do we account for that change? The answer is in verse 7. By divine intervention, something that had nothing to do with Isaiah at all. Isaiah didn't have anything to bring to the table. By divine intervention, his sins were forgiven. His sins were taken away. And because his sins were taken away, he was able to boldly say, here I am, send me. Brothers and sisters, Hebrews 4, verses 14 to 16, what we read this morning, what Lucas read, says that we have a high priest who passes through the heavens, who passed through the heavens. What does that mean? He was crucified, he was buried, and he was resurrected. He passed through the heavens. We have a high priest who passed through the heavens, who stands there on our behalf. And verse 16, because of that, we can now do what? 
boldly approach his throne. His throne of what? His throne of judgment? No. His throne of grace. Doesn't that bring you joy to your heart? That we have a king like this, that angels would cover their eyes and cover their feet, yet we can approach him boldly? Now think about this. What relationship do you know on this earth? What relationship do you know on this earth where you can have a measure of reverence and you can have a measure of boldness where you can share what is on your heart and what is on your mind? What relationship on this earth? There's one that comes to my mind right away. It's that of a father. It's that of a father. A good relationship with a father. And that's exactly where Jesus goes next. Turn your Bibles back to our passage of focus. Matthew 7, and we'll go into verse 9. Or what man is there among you who, when his son asks for a loaf, will give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, he will not give him a snake, will he? If you then, being evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father, who is in heaven, give what is good to those who ask him? Here, Jesus has moved on now to the relationship between a father and a son. And we have to recognize that these examples that Jesus is throwing out, they aren't completely random. He's not pulling them out of the air. Uh, They have meaning. So we'll go through them one by one. Jesus says, what kind of father would give him, give his son a stone when he asks for bread? We know that at that time, when bread was made, it often looked like stone. It often looked like little pieces of stone. When our Lord was in the wilderness and he was tempted by the enemy and he was hungry, what did the enemy say? Turn this stone into bread. What kind of a father, when his son asks for bread, would give him a stone that he might put that in his mouth, choke, and die? What kind of father would do that? Not a good father. Not a good one. He then talks about a fish and a snake. We know according to the Old Testament that the fish was a clean animal, that the snake was an unclean animal. What kind of a father, when his son asks for a fish, something clean, would give him something unclean, thereby putting him to his own spiritual detriment? What kind of father would do that? Not a good one. Not a good one. You see, so often what we do is we go to God in prayer and we ask for things earnestly from our heart. We ask for things. We seek. We knock. But then we don't get what we ask for. And then what do we do? We say things like, I guess he's not listening. Or we say things like, maybe he's got too much on his plate. Or heaven forbid we say things like, Maybe he's not even real. When what we likely should be saying is thank you, God, for not giving me that thing that would have been to my physical detriment or my spiritual detriment. I might not be able to see it right now. I might not be able to understand it right now, but you are a good father and a perfect father, and I trust you, and I trust you. Have we ever looked at it like that? Now, there are some qualifications to this. God's not giving us some license to just ask for anything at any time that makes no sense. 
and to behave in any sort of way. The first qualification to this is an obvious one, is that he is your father. To ask and to seek and to knock applies to those who are his children. So I ask you today, are you really his child? Before we ask for bread and fish, we must know if he is our father. Paul says that we should always examine ourselves to see if we are in the faith. Are we truly his children? The next qualification we find in 1 John 3.22, which says that we ask and we receive as we obey. The first qualification is that he is our father. The second qualification is that we actually obey him. Do our lives demonstrate that we are obedient children? He is our father. We obey him. Let's move on to the next verse. Verse 12. In everything, therefore, treat people the same way you want to be treated. This is the law and the prophets. Now, this is known all over our culture as what? The golden rule. Do unto others as you would have them do unto you. Very common. Now, what has happened, unfortunately, is that this phrase, what the world has done to it, is has turned it and convoluted it and polluted it and corrupted it to the point where it's no longer what it was originally meant to be. What the world does is it takes words and it redefines them. It's a very clever trick, but it's very effective. And the world does it very often. So it will take a word like love, love, and what it'll do is mix it with other things like tolerance, and then all of a sudden love means something that it was never intended to mean in the first place. So let's think about it. By the world's standard, by the world's standard, if you were to love me, me, by the world's standard, if you were to love me, you would sit back and you would do nothing while I did something that was harmful to myself. By the world's standard, you would sit back and do nothing while I did something that was harmful to those around me. You would say nothing to me while I lived in sin. That's the world's standard of love. C.S. Lewis, famous quote, he said, when qualifying, judging something, whether it's a corkscrew or a cathedral, you first have to understand what it was made for. You first have to understand what it was made for. Think about that. Think about a corkscrew. If you were holding a corkscrew in your hand and you didn't know what it was made for, what would you think that was? Some people might try to use it to scratch an itch, maybe dig in their ear or something. Some people might even think it's a weapon. It's pretty sharp at the edge. We have to understand what it was made for first. So here's my question to you. What were you made for? What were you actually made for? Were you made to amass wealth and riches? Were you made for that? Were you made to seek out the next good feeling, perpetually working and working to try to seek out the next good feeling? Or were you made to just be comfortable? 
Is that why you were made? The Westminster Shorter Catechism is just a collection of questions and answers that teach doctrinal truth. The first question in that collection of questions and answers is this. What is the chief end of man? What is the chief end of man? In other words, what is man's purpose? The answer? To glorify God and to enjoy him forever. That's the answer. You and I were made to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. So how does this apply to the golden rule? Well, here it is. If I believe that my purpose is to glorify God, and I do, if I believe that and you claim to love me, you will tell me when I'm not doing that. Right? You will tell me when I'm not doing that. You will say something to me when I'm not glorifying God in the way that I treat my wife. You will tell me when I'm not glorifying God in the way that I raise my children or the way that I honor my father and mother or the way that I work or the way that I conduct myself. If you truly love me, you will tell me when I am not doing that. And if I love you, I will do the same thing for you. You see, that's the aspect of the golden rule that the world has completely dissected out. It doesn't exist. To the world, the golden rule just means what? Be nice. That's it. You see, this is a hard teaching. This is a a difficult teaching. And in fact, it's actually an impossible teaching apart from the work of the Holy Spirit in our lives. So we are called to ask, seek, and knock. And we are called to treat each other with true love. Let's pray. Lord, our Heavenly Father, we come before you this morning thanking you for your goodness, thanking you for your grace. Lord, we pray, Father, and we recognize that we have been so unfaithful sometimes that when we pray for things and we don't get them, oftentimes we point our finger to you, God, when the truth is we should be thanking you because we trust you and have faith that you are a good and a perfect Father. Lord, also I pray, Father, that we learn to love each other the right way, that we treat others as we would want to be treated, Lord, I pray, Father, that we take this word, that we take this teaching, and we go from this place applying it to our lives. Father, as we approach communion, may we honor you and may we revere you as king of our lives. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.